Welcome to Dizzy People's Radio, the only podcast where I, Alex Diane, a young comedian in Los Angeles, desperately searches, search? I search for direction. Uh, my mother listened to the last episode and she said that I did it very professionally. And so now I'm really, I really want to make sure it, it, I continue that. I sound professional. I sound like a like a real interviewer, like a real broadcaster, uh, which I'm not. I'm, I'm a 23-year-old uh, with a microphone in my apartment who's recording this now because my roommate isn't home yet. Uh, no, but I, want, I just want to sound... I think the more that I think I got to sound professional, the less professional this is going to sound. Uh, and, and this interview coming up with Megan Gans writer for Community, uh, a former writer for The Onion, former writer for Important Things with Dimitri Martin. Uh, very funny, and someone that I like. I, follow, I look for her name in the credits because uh, she wrote my favorite episode, Cooperative Calligraphy. Colloquially, colloquial, this is the second time I've had trouble with this word today. Colloquially known as uh, uh, the bottle episode of Community. Uh, really interesting person, great writer, terrific interview. I didn't have to do that much. I didn't have to say much. She can talk, which is great in an interview. Um, and I, I just stayed out of it. I let her go. Uh, and, and it was cool. Uh, but I think that there were definitely places in here where I sound like a, a little fanboy, a little schoolgirl fanboy of the show, which I am. Uh, you know, I want I want to come off to these people. I meet people like this, and I want to be like, "Well, I'm I'm a professional interviewer. I'm doing a professional uh, podcast on the iTunes Store." Uh, but uh, I'm clearly not that. I also want to come off like I'm a peer, like I'm a writer too. But I'm like nobody cares because I'm just I'm all I am. If I meet someone via a podcast is. Uh, a podcaster. I'm a guy with a podcast. So if I try to like relate, you know, even though I found with her specifically with Megan, uh, I related to a lot of what she said about writing, about other stuff, but I kept my personal interjections to a minimum because, you know, <laughs> whatever. I'm, I'm Alex Diane desperately searching for direction, not Alex Diane fount of wisdom and experience. Although I may come off that way <laughs> when I'm not doing a, a show. I talked to Megan for so long that I'm splitting it up into two episodes. So you get double the pleasure and double the fun. Uh, and, and in the next episode, she talks more about community. Uh, she'll begin that by talking about her upcoming episode, which is uh, called Basic Lupine Urology. Uh, it's a law and order themed episode and I'll let you figure out the joke of that title on your own it's really clever in this episode we I'm not I won't spoil this one because it gets it gets there we get to that place so uh this week oh man here's a here's a little brush with adulthood I went to Ralph's uh last night I got a big case of beer and some other things, I got like eggs and uh, meat, you know, groceries, 
and I went, I did the self checkout uh, because I'm uh, of of I'm very of my generation. I don't I like to deal with as few people as possible. If if there's ever an opportunity to avoid talking to a person, I take it. It's not that I don't like people. I I do, and uh, I worked a job uh, this weekend. I'll talk about a little later. Um, that dealt with that. That was like I met a lot of people. There were lots of people around, and it's great. People are great. Yet, whenever I I don't know, I'm just trained somehow. Uh, I don't know. I'm not gonna just blame Facebook or whatever. But for some reason, if there's a chance that I can, if I can go to the ATM or instead of the teller, if I can do something online that I could do with a, I just want to avoid the people. I maybe I just think like uh, there's too much anxiety there. Even if it's a minimal, there's a minimal amount of anxiety in dealing with a person in any everyday situation that if that just doing something online or whatever can can get you out of. Anyway, I did the self self scan. I don't have to judge myself too much for doing the self checkout at Ralph's. Okay, it's faster too. There's less of a line. What do you want from me? So I do that and uh, I scan the the beer and it says an attendant has been notified. Uh, that you have are buying a restricted item. Um, so usually that happens, uh, somebody, like a guy will come over and check your ID. But he didn't. And I was so paranoid that, like, I was going to walk out of there not having my ID been checked, not having had my ID checked, that, like, a cop was going to follow me out, like, thinking I was trying to pull a fast one, like, buying alcohol uh, in the in the self-scan section. Uh, so I went up to the attendant, like, the guy who worked there, and I was like, do you need to check my ID or anything? And he's like, uh, no, nah, you're all good, bro. And so now I'm, like, totally a grown-up, right? I, I He didn't need to card me because I'm so... I, and it's not that I look so old, right? I still, I'm still definitely in ID check territory, but I just, I guess I carry myself with an air of confidence, like, like a real grown-up or, or an adult. Someone who says the word adult instead of grown-up, like really someone who probably goes places during the day and does things and uh, talks to people without worrying what they think or something like an adult or I have I have weird conceptions of what adults are I, I think is what I'm getting from this I don't really know what it what it means uh I talked about okay cupid last week there's a question on there uh, that uh they're like do you consider yourself regardless of age do you consider yourself an adult and I answer yes to that but I I don't believe it I'm pretty sure I lied on that question uh but now I haven't been carded. I offered the card, and it still was not taken. Uh, this is the threshold. And then I got home, and I realized, I looked at the receipt, I realized not only didn't they card me, they didn't charge me. And I look at this, and I'm like, yes, free beer. I got free beer. I'm probably not a grown-up. So I mentioned this weekend I did some paid work. Wow, I think the theme today is adulthood. Uh, I did. So I was a PA for a certain uh, singing competition show. I I could probably tell you which one it is, but I signed an agreement of 
really long document that said if I disclose anything about the outcome or, or, or any, any secret information that I owe a certain broadcast network five million dollars which I guess I guess that's the most amount of money that they could think of that like a normal person would say yeah I guess I guess if some secrets got out it might cost them that much money but they, but that's just a because you know you sign on to to do work for like a couple hundred bucks for the weekend and and they're like oh, but just by the way if you screw up you owe us five million dollars just so you know. Anyway, my job was to scan people in. I had my phone out and they have their like audition sheets and they give me their sheet and I scan the barcode on their sheet and, and they move on. And it's interesting seeing every, every different, they're just, just everybody that you could think of. And they're all, from my experience of it, is that they're all coming to me one after another and saying, hi, how are you? Thank you. That's it. And to see just just a rapid succession of every personality saying that from, hi, how are you? Thank you. Um, hi, uh, how are you? Thank you. Well, howdy. Well, how are you this fine day? And thank you very much. One guy came up to me and he says, Hi, how are you? I say, uh, I'm fine, thanks. How are you? He says, I'm very well today. Thank you very much for asking. I don't think he should really feel as good about it as he did. A lot of the other PAs that were there, the production assistants, and in the totem pole of Hollywood, uh, the production assistants are, are at the bottom. But I met a lot of people who were just really, really gung-ho about the Hollywood thing. Somebody gave me a whole speech like, listen, you know, a lot of people think it takes 20, 20 years to make it in Hollywood. They come out here, they say, well, I got to work for 20 years, I got to pay my dues, and then I'll make it. But I say, you know what, I'm going to make it in five years because I'm choosing to do that. Maybe for you it takes 20, that's fine. For me it's going to be five, okay? I thought that was cool. Uh, and, and they were just like a, a few of those people just like, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm here. I'm making it happen. Fuck you. Not fuck me. Not, not to me, but sort of like, I don't know, to, to the rest of them, to everyone else. And, uh, I respect that. I guess, you know, there's a certain amount of it that's like bullshitty that it's like, all right, we're sitting here, we're sitting around, our job is to put wristbands on <laughs> reality show contestants, uh, but, but they're gonna, they're making it, this is just step one in, in the successful story of a person who will eventually be very powerful. And I respect that. I think that's the attitude to have. I definitely don't have that attitude. I want to thank a couple of people today, a couple of our former guests. Thanks to John Mackey for putting me in touch with Megan Gans. And thanks to David Janov for opening up the Little Modern Theater to us. The Little Modern Theater has shows constantly. If you're in L.A., it's, uh, it's part of the complex on Santa Monica. Uh, a lot of good shows there. Uh, and he's doing, he does a podcast called Quiz Show the Quiz Show with a lot of funny people. So thanks to David. Uh, this interview does take place at the Little Modern Theater, uh, which is near the Paramount lot. 
And also, congratulations to Josh Duvendeck, who is on episode six of the podcast, who was just cast uh, a couple days ago in the new In Living Color. That's pretty cool, right? That's going to keep happening. You know, this is the first in the string in my life of just the pe- people that I know and I'm meeting out here or, or from back home who are making it, who are doing it. And he's he's good. I, I think he's going to go places, whatever happens with that show. He, I think this is this is the thing for him. Should we do this? What am I asking you for? Yeah, let's do it. Well, I took, when I first came out here, I took uh, the 101 and 201 classes for improv just because uh, I I, th- I thought it would help me in the writer's room, you know, just be a little bit uh, better about um, coming up with things off the cusp and like not thinking so much before I speak, which has always been my problem. Uh, and I found like in my 101 classes that I would do scenes and then the my teacher would be like, that was very good. It was very funny. Um, you didn't move in the entire scene. <laughs> you just stood there. So it was also good um, making the trans for me, making the transition from like print to television. I had to start thinking about characters moving around in scenes and and being dynamic and using that stuff as well, using their bodies as well to find humor. So I thought that it would be useful for that. And and it was I, I didn't I might take some more, but I didn't keep going with it because I don't see myself entertaining audiences with my uh, improv skills or anything. I've heard you say that you like you don't like throwing stuff out in the writer's room. Uh, is that still true? Um, I find it a little bit harder just to pitch jokes off the cuff. Um, I I prefer to take things home and sort of sit with them for a while and like craft those jokes. That's why I became a writer instead of a performer. Um, but uh, it's I'm getting better. I mean, it's like trial by fire basically I had to learn how to do it so uh you know I'm 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 better now I think I I think I'm better when there's a specific joke and we need like alts uh, meaning just like different jokes for that space um than I am if we're inventing dialogue and it's like okay now Annie needs a line and you have absolutely no idea what that line is I think I'm I think I'm better with limitations just trying to fill a void uh and, uh, but yeah, I'm, I mean, it's something I'm learning all around. And so I, th- I think I'm okay at it. Is there something that you're more valuable at, like in the writer's room, that they kind of keep you around? If, if some people are better at throwing out uh, uh, just lines and jokes in the room, is there something that are you better with story, like while you're sitting there? Um, I make some really good cookies. <laughs> no, I, uh, yeah, I think story maybe. I, I, I'm very good at, um, I feel like I'm better probably at talking about the story in general and, and where it should go and, um, and character dynamics. Um, and I'm, I'm, I think I am good at writing dialogue, uh, just when I have my own time, like my first episode, cooperative calligraphy was all dialogue runs basically. And, uh, and I think that was probably where I shine the most is when I, I have time with a bunch of characters to sit sit down and, and write lines and have people play off other people and, and have find jokes that way. Um, I think that's probably my strong suit. Let's talk about community later. 
because I'm interested in your like beginnings. Okay. You you were hired to the Onion at a very early age, and based on uh, the first two sketches that you ever wrote, um, and then you were hired to Community based on the first half hour script you ever wrote. <laughs> well, yeah, the first two sketches. That's how I got on Dimitri's show. Okay. Um, but the Onion, I I went to right after college. I'd been writing on a similar paper when I was in college, and so I sort of knew the format. And I'd also been obsessed with the Onion since I was thirteen. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, and then my, my career has always kind of been that way where as soon as I learn how to do something, suddenly that's my job and I have to do it all the time. So then I, I tried my hand at sketch writing and then got that Dimitri Martin job and then all I was doing was sketch writing. And then yes, my first spec script I wrote, which was an, it's always sunny, um, spec was how I got my job at community. And then the second thing I ever wrote was my first episode there. So it's been, I've described it before as like the best kind of drowning. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, you're kind of a natural, you just do it. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very good at lying and then Googling things and figuring out how, uh, how they work and, and reverse engineering and, and sort of, yeah, I, I, I'm a big fake it till you make it sort of person. Um, I think though I am like, I wasn't very good at sketch writing. I think I can admit that now though, that I'm on the other side of it and it's not my job anymore. I, it's a little bit too condensed of a format for me and you have to be very good at strong concepts in order to do sketch writing because you have three pages and you really have to land that world very quickly and, and with minimal dialogue. And I kind of love, um, like I said, dialogue runs. Like I, I much more enjoy having 30 pages where people don't leave a room and all they're doing is kind of chatting with each other. I think that that's more my strong suit. Was there anything that you were doing between when you were 13 and when you went to work at The Onion or, or when you went to work at your college, uh, Onion, mm -hmm. um, that led to this ability that you have? What, what were you writing in that time? What were you watching? Um, well, I never planned on being a TV writer. So I never wrote, I was never one of those kids that like wrote my own shows or, or thought about that. Um, that was me. <laughs> really? Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I honestly thought until I was probably in college that TV shows were written by the characters on the TV shows. Like I thought that the actors just kind of like wrote it and that was, I just never thought that much about it, I guess. Um, but I, th when I was, I was very shy till I was probably middle of high school and so I didn't do a lot of writing I think I was like mulling stuff over in my head and I didn't quite know that that my natural um what my natural sensibility was was humorous because I wasn't saying things to people I wasn't talking a lot and I wasn't it's not like I was um I wasn't like a cut up in school I didn't like make people laugh I I was very quiet and I was a very good student respectful of teachers and so not a class clown um but I did have like I remember when I got AOL uh I got an angel fire page and I used to write little blog entries for myself and then when I was um when I was in uh, high school, I think I started letting some of my friends read them and they thought that they were funny. And then I was like, oh, maybe I'm funny. Maybe that's what I'll do. Uh, and uh, and so, yeah, so that probably prepared me a little bit, but it was mostly, I would say more 
absorbing that helped me. I was just watching TV constantly. I was read everything that I was reading was comedy based. Like the only books I were I was reading were Onion books, and I read like uh, Seinfeld's book and Chris Rock's book and Tim Allen's book and Bill Cosby. Like ever, anybody that any comedian that ever wrote a book, I read it when I was little, and uh, I didn't care if they were good, bad. I read all of Dave Barry's books. Used to read him every. Actually, he was the first fan letter I ever wrote was a fan letter to Dave Barry saying, "I want to be you. I want to grow up." and do your job and um so so it was more I just I think I just sucked everything in for a long time and then it took till I was almost in college to start doing my own output it's funny that's uh similar to me like I read all those books I would stay up um like in summer camp reading the Dave Barry books and I'd just be laughing while everybody's trying to sleep yeah they're great I remember what was that one about men he had the uh guide to guys Dave Barry's Guide to Guys. I don't know if I read that one. Oh, it was so funny. I mean, they're just, and it was like, that was a good experience because it was an experience of somebody who just crammed something full of jokes. It was just joke, 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 you know, and and it was, um, I think like that's my precursor to why I went into The Onion and why I've always been interested in shows that are very joke heavy and very like focused on, I mean, that's why I watched 30 Rock and, you know. And that's why I loved community because it was, it was just like a really quick (laughs) patter, basically jokes. For me, I felt like, uh, I was the same, like I wasn't a class clown or anything. Uh, I was very quiet, um, and just watched a lot of stuff. But I remember from like an early age, uh, I thought I was funny. (laughs) (laughs) My mom thought I was funny way before I did. I think she, um, I remember in fourth grade, I wrote this poem about a paper towel, uh, that was like adventures of a paper towel or something like that. And my mom to this day will bring it up with people and thinks it's so funny. I think actually my fourth grade self and my mom's sense of humor, that was where those two things crossed. And then since then I've probably become less funny to her because my humor has become more esoteric and she just still thinks that that thing I wrote in fourth grade was hilarious. Um, does she like community? She does like community. She, she, uh, it's a little bit I mean it's hard like that's not a show that most parents can get into do your parent do your parents watch no, it? no I my mother like introduced me to all like George Carlin and Seinfeld yeah. and everything but I can't get her to watch Community yeah. or Parks and Rec yeah I think it's it's hard I mean I, I remember my first episode uh well cooperative calligraphy I called my mom afterwards and I was like what'd you think and we had it already been like I'd gotten all these positive things on Twitter and people were loving it and the reviews were coming out it was really good and I called my mom and she was like it was good they talk really fast and I was like that's your review they talk really fast but honestly she comes from a from a generation of comedy where you had a break between every joke where there was this laugh track so you could absorb that that was a joke and now we're so good I mean we all grew up on that stuff and that's just like too slow for us and so now we need we need 30 Rock where you basically have to pause in order to (laughs) catch all the jokes and watch things and like our show you have to watch it over and over on DVR we're used to that kind of viewing whereas our my parents are used to having you know time they are used to jokes coming and then the acknowledgement of jokes 
and then the setup and then a new joke. <clears throat> and we now, yeah, we just blow through them. Um, but she does like it. She really, I can always tell the ones she's going to like, like I, I know she really uh, probably liked the wedding episode that we just did. And she really liked the one earlier this year where, um, that had Asian Annie. She thought it was really, she calls me and she goes, how did you guys think of having like an evil twin version of Annie? And because she's apparently never heard that cliche of like uh-huh. evil twins before. So she thought we like totally invented that. That was like a new thing for community. And I didn't tell her we didn't because um, I like her to be impressed with me. <laughs> Wasn't that based on, weren't they looking for an Asian or Latina Annie in casting? Yeah, they had been. And um, and we always just thought, we, like we had been talking about it a little bit, that it would be a good foil for Annie to have somebody that was just kind of naturally preco- more precocious than even she is and seems like sort of she doesn't try as hard or maybe she's not as unhinged she doesn't quite seem like she has Annie's capacity to just lose it um so we we'd been thinking about that for a while but yeah it was based on that I think that girl that we cast and was one of the ones they were considering for Annie originally I think that might be true is your mother like do you still do you have that need to like (laughs) make it good for her or or have her approve of something even um, though it's like, all right, you just wrote the best episode of the <laughs> best show on TV. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I mean, I want her to like it. Um, I, my, all, most of my humor came from my dad. Um, he was the one that showed me Marx Brothers movies when I was growing up and bought me my first Mad Magazine and stuff like that. So he had... I think felt like we shared more of kind of a sensibility, which is more like a sarcastic sort of biting satirical sensibility. Whereas my mom is, she's the nicest person I've ever met in my life. And so anything that's even remotely mean, she's just not going to get into. I mean, she's, she likes when things are sweet. She, she watched it. She watched, um, it's complicated and really loved it. Like she thought that it was, you know, she, she likes things like that. She likes things that are, uh, she liked dream girls. She likes things that are kind of inspirational stories. Like, not, and, that, and that's not to put down my mom. Like, I that's why I gravitated towards community as opposed to something that might be funnier, but not um, not as heartfelt, not as heartwarming. I think that's the, my, my. I've had a nice mix of my dad and mom in that way. Um, my dad passed away when I was eight, so it's it's been a little bit hard because I know that he would have loved the career, the specific career path that I went on because he's always, he was always on the sort of cutting edge of comedy. Like he was showing me, I mean, I'd say Marx Brothers, obviously that was from a while ago, but he, but he was also like into Letterman and like, he was always the one that's showing me SNL and like all this stuff that I was really getting into. And, um, and so I feel like he would have been into the onion and he would have probably been into community too. Um, so that's been, that's been a little difficult, but, um, but my mom is, she is absolutely fully supportive of my career. I like, couldn't ask for more supportive parents. She, uh, uh, but in a very parental way, she supported. Like when I got my, um, my staff writing job at The Onion, which was my absolute dream job since like I was 13, I got, I, you know, they called me and they told me and I burst into tears and I was like, freaking out and running around my apartment and I call my mom and I'm like sobbing and I'm like mom I got a staff writing job for the onion and she goes oh my god 
do they have health insurance? And I said, yeah. And she goes, oh my God, I'm so happy for you. So that's like my mom. She has very particular concerns. She wants to know I'm fed and clothed. And if I write for two and a half men or community, I'm sure she doesn't care. Um, but, uh, but yeah, she's, she's incredibly supportive. She never for a second, when I told her I wanted to go into comedy, never for a, even a second did she say, I think you should be a doctor. She was always really behind me 100%. So that's all you can ask for. Mm-hmm. I think my parents should have uh, maybe pushed for a doctor a little more. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I always tell people if there's anything that you would rather, if there's anything you think you would even want to do as much as you would want to do comedy, it doesn't even have to be more so, but you should probably do that thing it, because comedy is very difficult. It's a really hard, and it's gambling on your talent for a long time. I mean, I went into... I went into such serious debt getting the job that I currently have that I wasn't I wasn't out of my debt until my second year on community and I'd already had a job in television before that. So it's a big gamble. I mean, you like, I went to college too. I didn't like, there's some people that even make a bigger gamble and don't even, you know, drop out of college or whatever to pursue comedy and I can't even imagine that. Um, but I, but it, it, it's scary because nobody is paying you for a long time and it feels like you're doing a lot of stuff that isn't ever going to become anything. Um, but when people ask me, you know, how my, how I got to where I am now, there are so many things I did along the way that I did for free. Like when I started working for the onion, uh, when I was freelancing for them after my, uh, writing fellowship, I, I, they, they were paying me $300 a story, which was $300 a week. Basically I was getting paid to work there, which in New York city is not money. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. you basically might as well just burn it. It's like not even, it doesn't even go in your pocket. Um, and, and I was living like, I wouldn't, I, I couldn't, I almost asked them like, can you not, can you just pay me in cash? Because I don't want to cash these checks because my bank will just take this money. Um, and, uh, and I, but I would go in, even making that little amount of money, I would go in for all the meetings, even though they weren't paying me, because I just, I was like, I have to get involved with, I need to be so involved with the staff that by the time they hire me, there's no difference. It's the only difference will be that they start paying me for what I'm already doing, because I, it needs to be so fluid. And all of that stuff could have not paid off, and, and all of that time could have gone nowhere, but it obviously all was leading to something. I mean, the, the, all that time you put in it's um it's it's hard because you think you you have to stop thinking about it like you're preparing yourself for an eventual career and start thinking about it like no this is your career it just doesn't pay you anything right now it will pay you eventually hopefully god like hopefully but sometimes you know you can be doing that for years and nothing happens when you went to those meetings did you feel like uh, oh, I'm just, I'm just the freelancer. Or I don't, on. <laughs> yeah, I'm not really supposed to be here. Was that a um, weird thing? They were so nice and so welcoming uh, to me. And, um, and I think they could tell how much I loved the paper and how badly I wanted to be good at that job. Um, that they were, they were great. They were fine about it. And, and I think that those, the guys at the onion know what that's like and know, and respect that sort of dedication because a lot of those guys that started on the paper in the eighties were paid in pizza for years. I mean, like literally they would go to onion meetings and there would be a pizza there and that would be their payment for working on the onion for, I mean, basically until like the thing went online, people weren't getting checks. So they like, they get that paying your dues stuff. So I don't, I, I think that they, 
they saw it as commitment and uh but yeah I mean um it was it was scary and uh yeah, I, I, I'm sure I didn't, I didn't ask, like I, I, I sort of, I mean, I guess I asked permission kind of, but I also just was always around and I was like, I will always be around until they tell <laughs> me to leave. I will, I will keep doing this. Even if I have to be a temp forever in order to support myself, I don't care. I, I would rather spend, uh, I would rather go broke sitting in a onion, in the onion offices than have money and sit in a cubicle. And what did you do in those meetings? If you're if you're not good at throwing <laughs> stuff out, um, well, a lot of the onion meetings were more. Uh, we did a lot of our writing alone. Um, some of some of the brainstorming was done there, but um, but the onion is more. For instance, like you'll have a headline. I mean, you write your headlines at home, so it's not like you're inventing headlines on the spot. So we'd write the headlines on like a Sunday, and then come in on a Monday and pitch them, and then uh, we would all together just yes or no the headlines and vote on them, and then Tuesday we'd have this giant list of headlines that you would take home on Monday night and go through and circle your favorites and say like, okay, well this one feels like it would be a long story. Whereas this one just feels like a one liner. Um, and, uh, then you would come in the next day and, and, and on Tuesday, once we would pick the headlines, we would do brainstorming, but it was every headline contains the entire joke of the whole article basically. Um, and so you would have this platform and then you would just be making these jokes that relate to that specific setup, which I find a lot easier than just like blank page. You know, it's easy for me if you're saying for instance, okay, we're doing a, um, a, this article is about a roast of um, of a world leader. Uh, now come up with roast jokes that are like politically based. Or uh, this is an op-ed about um, Santa uh, Santa saying ho ho ho. I saw you masturbating. So come up with like masturbation puns that have to do with Christmas. I mean, I can do that because they're they're sort of outlined, you know, I mean, like they're like, I already know that setup, And so I can deliver jokes. Uh, and, and so I, I was okay in those meetings. And, and honestly, I probably gotten worse since then because it was such a grind there that it was just this boot camp, and you just were expected to do it. So I just rose to the occasion and in TV, you're a lot of the times you're sitting around and you're discussing story and you're just dis discussing character dynamics and you're discussing scene breakdowns and things like that, that aren't pure joke pitch. Um, and so I probably fall, I probably gotten a little rusty. It would be useful for me to go back and start doing that stuff again. You came in talking about Trayvon Martin and, <laughs> uh, I heard you on subject change yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on one of the, on one of the interviews saying you used to like to debate religion. Mm -hmm. It feels like that's, there's some part of your personality that gets like defensive about I get certain riled things. Up. Yeah. What is that? Um, I just think that that's like my satirical brain. I mean, I I always find it fascinating and enraging when there's a large difference between some one between what someone's saying and what they obviously think. And you're talking about Trayvon Martin and for anyone that doesn't know the story, which is tragic that the news isn't covering it as much as they should be. There's a 17-year-old kid in Florida, um, African-American kid who was living in a gated community, was walking to a 7-Eleven just to get an iced tea and some skittles for his younger brother came back into his own neighborhood and was shot by a man who said he worked for but ended up not being part of any sort of neighborhood watch said he worked for a neighborhood watch and basically just found this kid 
said this kid looked suspicious because he was wearing a hoodie, which I wear every day of my life. And, uh, and I find offensive to think that there's an item of clothing that is not available to um, all races because it makes us look suspicious. And this morning, Geraldo Rivera on Twitter was basically telling parents of, of Latino and black children that, um, oh, well, you shouldn't let them wear hoodies because it makes them look suspicious. So it's the kid's fault. He shouldn't have been wearing a hoodie. And he actually said that hoodie killed Trayvon Martin just as sure as Zimmerman, who's the guy that shot him, just as soon as Zimmerman did. And I, it, it literally, it makes me have a visceral, physical, I feel my blood boiling inside of myself because that is, you are, you are trying, under the guise of protecting children, you are accepting racism. And you are, and I find the difference between a person's rhetoric and what they clearly believe in their heart to be fascinating and, and the most enraging thing that, that people can use language to cover up what is obviously like the blackness of their own heart, like the dark, deep-seated racism. And uh, and so I was just going on this tear on Twitter and telling Donald, uh, you know, on our show, well, I guess you can't wear hoodies on set anymore or else I'm going to have to shoot you because apparently that's off limits to to you. And How does um, he respond to that? Uh, he didn't yet. I'm sure he's touring and he, and he doesn't. But... Uh, but yeah, I find it, um, I think that thing that just, yeah, it just gets me enraged, that stuff. And I think there's a part of me that could have gone into law or could have gone into debate. And I felt the same way about religion. You know, you, you're you purporting, I, I went to Catholic school for, uh, until I went to college. So um, 18 or yeah, I mean, 13 years of my life that I was in school, was in Catholic school. And, and it made me very agitated because here is a, profoundly positive message that is being warped by this institution into being something that is homophobic, that is um, in some ways uh, uh, misogynistic. I always felt like I was always the person in class asking questions like, why can't women be priests? Why can't women serve in the church? Why are women only considered lay people? And the answers that I would get would just be so unfulfilling. They would be things like, well, the 12 apostles were all men. Oh, really? The 12 apostles? You learned that from that book that was written all by men, uh, that they were all men. So Mary Magdalene, as described by a man, was just a whore that hung around Jesus. But God, as far as like we're concerned, she might have been one of the apostles. I mean, how do we know? We don't like we weren't there. Um, and so if, even if you're buying into that these people existed, I feel like it's such a warped. It's and you and I don't. I never believed in a god. And now I'm atheist, but I never believed in a god. If there was a god, I never believed in a god that would say things like there are people that are born wrong. There are people that are born. Um, that that I made in order to constantly feel one way and have to change their personality to people who want to love other people and and I and that's wrong and that the fact that they would want to love another person who happens to be of their same sex is a wrong thing that I've created and it just never that argument never made sense to me and I and I was just one of those sticklers in class that was always raising my hand and saying I'm sorry so what, what is, just explain to me one more time how um, birth control is wrong. Just explain to me one more time how unbaptized babies go to hell. Just, you know, just one more time. I just want to hear it from your mouth. I want to hear how these things. And so I, I've always been like a stickler about stuff like that. And, 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 you know, you would think that that stuff is antithetical to humor, but that's what humor is. It's pointing out the the large gap between who we want to be and who we are, between like our um, our our the the our mindsets, our our hope for what we can be, our heroes 
uh, impression of ourself of of like how great we are and the the sad reality i mean you like we we are people who write ourselves as heroes but we also participate in pie eating contests like we are a strange bunch of of humans and humor is just about highlighting those differences and saying you know nothing is wholly tragic nothing is wholly good um there's these mixes and and the worst thing we can do is make these black and white statements about these people are good and those people are bad and for instance like this thing about Trayvon Martin to say that there are certain types of clothing that are off limits I mean water fountains like let's just make it water fountain let's just make it doors let's just make it re restaurants like when when does that stop when do we I'm gonna go on a rant I'm sorry uh, but but yeah to me that is that's the same thing as humor it's saying I'm pointing out how you're an idiot I'm I'm showing um, how 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 much of a gap there is between what you're saying, what you clearly believe, and I think cl clearly he's a racist. If he thinks that there should that there should be, I mean, one of the other writers, An Andy Bobro, pointed it out very well. If there's a type of piece of clothing that's only allowed for whites and not for for black or Latino people, then is the hoodie really the problem or is the you know is that is yeah. that you know like it, it should we say that they also can't drive cars because cops are more likely to pull them over i mean where where does that argument end and and just exposing that is like always been an interest of mine and uh and yeah maybe i should have put it into something a little more um proactive but uh i choose to use i think humor is an easy easy way for people to swallow that pill sometimes and and I, i've always found um and i think this is true that when people laugh at things it's a it's a tacit uh, and a uh, form of agreement that they're making when they laugh at something you say they're subtly in their mind without them even knowing they're saying i agree with you we're speaking the same language and it's just easier than than me standing up and going on a rant about all these things. it's just easier for me to make a joke and have people laugh and then go and then somewhere in the back of their mind hopefully going yeah, I guess I do I, I agree with that I tried um, in Hebrew school once while I was reading Inherit the Wind in school we were talking about Genesis and I think I brought up like uh, where did uh, where did their like wives come from yeah. <laughs> and they're like uh, well time passed yeah Time passed, um, meaning they had sex with their own sisters and, and <laughs> mothers and weirdness. But like everyone, even the other kids in the class jumped on me like, stop pressing this point. Yeah. Accept it with blind faith. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And, and I think that's unfortunate because what should we look more into? What should we think about more than our religion, than, than where the world came from, than why we're put on this planet? Why, what should, what's so scary about investigating that? And I think that if there is a God and if the things that are in the Bible are true, then I doubt that he would be scared about us talking about them. I mean, what, what, what's there to hide? If it's, if it's accurate, if you really believe it, then why won't you talk to me about it? I did the same thing when we were in, um, when I was in religion class and they started talking about the evils of birth control pill. And this is me using, and religion class was the only time I ever got sent down to the principal's office was because of my sarcastic little, but I remember saying in, uh, in, in religion class. So I'm sorry, is the act of taking birth control pills evil or are you saying that the pills themselves are evil? And my teacher at the time was like, no, the, the pills are evil. And I was like, oh, that must be why when I drop them, they fall towards hell. 
I mean, just like, because it was just so, and then of course he's like, we don't need that, go down. And I was like, yeah, but you're saying equally ridiculous things. And, and it was sad because at that time, I still had a lot of faith. I still really believed in God. I still really wanted to believe in the church. But every time I would have these questions, I was presented with such um, uh fear and, and, you know, shut up and quiet and stop asking those questions that it, it actually pulled me away from the church. And I started saying, well, I don't like any institution that doesn't allow me to question it. I think that that shows, uh, and, and, and I think that that, sh- that doesn't let me grow with that faith. I'm not going to be able to grow. And so then I went to agnostic and then very quickly, actually, when I was in New York, I, you know, um, I read this great book. Anyone who's agnostic and is thinking about making the plunge into atheism, <laughs> read this book called The End of Faith. Um, and, uh, and it is all about how if you, if you follow that, if you follow the line of reasoning of the church, God, how do we get onto the subject? I'm going to, but if you follow on this line of reasoning of the church, you're not allowed to decide which parts of the Bible you're going to follow. So if you're a Catholic who thinks that gay people are okay, then you've decided that you know better than God. Um, because there, if, if you believe the parts of the Bible that say it's not. Also, if you don't, if you believe the, 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 and this is true, there are parts of the Bible that say that you can be stoned for working on Sundays, that you can be killed for mixing cloths and crops, that, um, that you can sell your daughter into slavery. And we've decided in our modern church, because we know those things are wrong, we've decided just to avoid thinking about those things, to think that they're, oh, God must not have really meant those things. Those are in the Old Testament. We don't follow that stuff anymore. Um, he didn't ever tell us we couldn't follow the old Testament. He never, you know, that was not an edict from God saying, yeah, just throw out some of those things that I used to, uh, think were important. And obviously the Jewish faith still follows a lot of those, uh, like kosher rules and things like that. Why as Catholics have we decided and Christians decided that we know better and we can make decisions about, uh, that people can work on the Sabbath, for instance, why have we decided that that's okay? Are we, do we find ourselves better than God? And so when you follow that line of reasoning to its natural conclusion, you pretty much either have to decide that the Bible should be taken as fact or that maybe there isn't, I mean, maybe that, that the, our, uh, current understanding of God isn't correct. Maybe it's not a, a, a monotheistic religion and maybe we should start thinking about more types of spirituality and, and, and find reasons to be good to each other and to care about the environment and to care about, um, ourselves and our bodies than because a guy in the clouds told us to do it. And that's, and I found a great amount of release when I let go of the idea of religion. And I found myself feeling more spiritual and feeling more connected to other people because I stopped thinking that I was always being sinful and wrong. I mean, I had, um, and when I was in Catholic school, I remember going in third grade, I remember going to, um, to confession and confessing to a priest that I had missed church that Sunday and having that priest told me that I was going to hell and really believing that as a third grader and starting to sob and thinking that I was going to hell and that I couldn't tell my mom because she would be so sad if she knew that I was going to hell. And I left that fully convinced that my life was over and then found out a few years later that that priest was a chain smoker. And so at a certain point of giving confessions to kids, he would get, he would want to get to the parking lot so bad to start chain smoking that he would just start getting everyone out the door by just telling them that they were going to hell. And, (laughs) and the fact that the church could say, 
sanction people like that to deliver its message to the flock. And obviously there's been much worse than that happening amongst priests. But the fact that, that, that there was that kind of infall, that, that, that somebody that I had been told was, um, my, was my connection to God and was the person who was telling God's word to me could be that wrong. Uh, made me start thinking about, well, what else have I accepted? What else do I just keep swallowing? Which is a big thing for like a fourth grader to start thinking about. Like what what else am I just swallowing that I didn't ever think about before and challenge? And I think that those two things really did lead me to humor. I always have liked, you know, uh, people that just don't accept the world as it is. The people that point at things and go, that's weird. Don't you think that's weird? That seems a little odd. And so, yeah, I think those two things were real. I, might, I may never have become a comedian if I didn't go to Catholic school. <laughs> or an atheist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how, do you, how do you make the jump from agnostic to atheist? Because that's something I've thought about. Like, I can't say that I'm an atheist because, uh, like, I don't know. Yeah, exactly. You mm-hmm. don't know. And, and I still, I mean, I'm an atheist who doesn't know. I just, um, I think think that it's probably very likely that this is our one shot on earth and that this is it. And I, and I think that there's probably that I will, that for me personally, I will, I act better and more, um, responsibly in my life when I know that there might not be an afterlife because, and I know that some people think like, well then fuck it, let's murder, let's do whatever we want. But, but why, if this is our, if this is a, if this is a gift that we that we have received from uh not from a person on high that expects us to be a certain way but through a but through a process of evolution that is stunning in its complexity and if you ever study evolution and you think that that's not amazing enough of a reason to care about your life is the fact that we've become from single-celled organisms we've become what we are today if you think that that's not enough of a reason to feel proud of being a human being and want to be a good person and want to care about other human beings and think that life is precious then uh you never deserved to have life i mean you you do if you don't think about that stuff if you don't if you're not amazed every day that there are beetles that are fully formed in there that they are as evolutionarily complete as we are and yet completely different and and will outlive all of us and they're so simplistic in their cre- in their in their um, structure uh, if you're not amazed by that if that's not enough for you to ju- to to make your life a good one then i don't know why a guy looking over your shoulder like santa claus would be um, but for me personally it was yeah it was it was reading books like that and also I think that I think that religion has been used in my lifetime to cover a lot of sins a lot all manner of um uh of, of racism and hostility and and uh, and hatred that I think I I think that I as a person needed to step away from it and take its power away from me. Um, agnostic, uh, I I would never anyone who's agnostic I, I would never I, yeah I I would never say to take that away from you because and I also understand. I, I obviously don't have children, but be, coming from a family where uh, my dad passed away at a very young age, I can't imagine if I had a child and my spouse passed away, not telling my child, no, no, they live in a nice place and they're looking down on you and they think about you all the time. That's a 
hard. I don't know how atheists tell their kids, yep, he's dead, he's gone, he doesn't exist anymore. Uh, that's a hard, that's a difficult concept for a child to grasp. And yet I find comfort in knowing, I mean, I don't, for instance, visit my father's grave ever. I think it's a morbid thing to go to a grave site and look and feel, because that's not him. He doesn't exist there anymore. He's, he's, his essence is no longer like, it's not, and it would freak me out if I thought that there was any part of him that was in a box beneath the ground rotting. Uh, and so it's given me release to know that that's not, that's not happening, that, that that was, I had eight years with that person and they were, they informed my life. They changed my whole personality and they had worth and he had meaning and it didn't have to be because somebody created him it just he just was he was just an amazing person that I had in my life so um, I would never take away your agnostic uh, I, th I think that that's a perfectly good it's 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 humble to say you don't know I mean it's I it's, tried I tried yeah. to transfer to atheist and like people wouldn't let me I'd have hmm. I get into a debate and they're like you're not really an atheist you know well I think also people people think that saying I don't know there might be a power greater than me that I can't conceive of I think that people get caught up on thinking that that needs to be a god instead of thinking like I and I was a, I was an English major in college and I got really into the trans transcendentalism um, and it was this whole time in where you know Ralph Waldo Emerson and and uh, and um, you know uh, would, was talking about how basically that might just be nature. It might just be this weird connection we feel with each other, this, this thing that because of evolution, this, this DNA in our beings that's tied to each other in this way that we can't possibly understand because it's been eons and we're passing these things, these, these protein, these markers between um, ourselves and each other. And maybe that's what unites us. Maybe that is what we think of as God is this, this common thread, this, that unites us all. Um, and I think that people may be scared of thinking that it's within us as opposed to above us, um, that, that the God of our people is something inside. Um, and, uh, and, but I think like it's, you know, to me, it's 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 a little bit more humble to think that that maybe there's no um, that it's so beyond our grasp that you can't even think of it in a in a uh, a theistic sense. You can't even think of it like there's a hierarchy of beings that there's one over you or under you or or that we're better than beetles or or fish, um, but that maybe it's a freak occurrence, a beautiful freak of nature that we're here at all. And it's, and that in its of itself is amazing. That is in and of itself is something that we can't, I mean, just the other day I was watching, there's this new, um, I'm like been watching planet earth and like, I'm really into that stuff. And there's this new show frozen planet. And they were talking about snowflakes forming on pieces of dust and they have a crystalline structure and everybody knows that there's no two snowflakes that are alike, but, but, snowflakes form with six arms like usually this the structure is six and that to me is incredible that water and dust hit each other and something in those things knows to make six arms like to to, to make a pattern that's 
a, a sick and there's patterns in the universe that you see over and over again why do those things there's no consciousness to dust there's no consciousness to water how does it know to do that all the time and that to me is like well those things are imbued with a force that we can't possibly understand i mean that 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 it's i don't know if you call it chemistry math like whatever but it but that to me is an, enough of a, an amazing thing that i'm not going to run outside and stab somebody or hate somebody or or participate in a lot of um sinful activity because like i don't i think we deserve better than that i mean we're like our life as a thing the fact that our heart keeps beating deserves that we don't use the the miracle that our heart beats every you know few seconds that we don't use that to hurt and hate each other i think that that's just like something that if you don't like that just seems common sense i mean it just seems like I don't know. I've always just gravitated towards good. I think that's the only thing that makes any sense to me. I got real deep. (laughs) That's great. I I can't imagine you and Dan Harmon in the same room. (laughs) Oh, really? No, Dan, uh, you know, Dan, Dan is, he believes in a lot of that stuff too. I joked around with him that, um, uh, he, he, he definitely believes in, in, I mean, he talks about God a lot, but I, but I don't think, I don't think he thinks he's, I wouldn't, I don't think he would consider himself, um, Christian or, or anything like that. He just, I think he finds it in the idea of a God interesting, uh, that there's, there's this divine creator, which I'm sure he sees a little bit of himself, uh, in that image. Um, (laughs) well, I just, I just said that because, uh, like I've heard him go off on similar tangents. Like I heard him on Kumail's podcast. Oh yeah. Uh, Did you hear that? The indoor kids? No, I haven't listened. It's like supposed to be about video games, but he's just talking about evolution Mm -hmm. and like Kumail can't stop him until the end Kumail's just like listen Dan I'm sorry I have to pee <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then he's like all right I'll talk about video games <laughs> yeah we uh in the writer's room when Dan would start to go on uh Chris McKenna started this tradition sometimes when Dan starts going on these um rants like these long-winded uh uh, when he just expounds upon a certain subject, Chris will start playing the last Starfighter uh, music, like the Heroes theme, and uh, and just sort of below it, like slowly, you'll just start hearing this like music come up, and then Dan <laughs> just starts laughing and stops. He realizes he's being made fun of. It's pretty fun. More so than comedy writers were in the past, I think. Uh, the community writers and just writers in general today, maybe because of Twitter, uh, are more celebrities. Um, like you have thousands of people following you on Twitter. Whereas like when I was a kid, I would always read the credits Mm -hmm. and you know, I'd recognize when one person was writing on two shows, but I didn't know who they were. Mm -hmm. If they did a guest appearance, I didn't know it was them. You're even better than me because like I said, when I started watching TV, I didn't even like who Mm -hmm. looked for even the writers. I mean, who knows about writers at all? Um, somebody asked me this question and it was like really surprising to me. I was like, because they had phrased it as like, what does it feel like to be a part of the, the most like well-known, I mean like most out there visible writing staffs on TV? And I was like, really? Uh, I hadn't thought about that, but, but um, I guess it's true. I think that 
I think that people crave a greater connection with their media now. I think media is no longer this package that arrives on your doorstep that somebody left in the night and that you just get to appreciate or not, but there's no back and forth. I think now people want to, people crave shows that live and breathe with them, that this isn't appointment viewing. I mean, that's the reason that we have no ratings because nobody watches TV like they come home at 8 p.m. and switch on the television set and they sit down and watch this TV show like a play. People don't do that anymore. I mean, they they find a new TV show and they devour three seasons in a weekend. That that's the way people experience TV TV now. Um, and and with that sort of mentality, that fanship, it it they they start diving in and they want to know more. They want to know who wrote this. They want to know who produced it. They want to know what other what these actors have been in, what else they've been in. And now we have a wonderful little gadget that lets us find that stuff. You know, it goes on IMDb and like we can find it in an instant. Oh. Allison Breeze in two shows. Maybe I'll watch that other show she's in too. That's interesting. So I, I mean, this is my only sitcom I've ever written on. So it is my only experience. I don't have like a lot to compare it to. I think it is a little bit weird for, for me because I was, you know, I specifically sought out writing because I'm not a performer because I, I've always preferred to kind of be in the shadows. I mean, my ideal situation is seeing work that I've written performed and getting to sit in the audience and just hear people laugh at it and have none of them know who I am or why I'm there because that to me feels like a really honest um, exchange between between uh, writer and uh, an audience. I, I would hate to think that people now, because they follow me on Twitter, think that they have to say my episodes are good if they're not because they feel some sort of like friendship with me or something. <clears throat> I, I want the honesty. That's what I crave about, about humor. There's an honesty about it. You either burst out laughing or you don't like that. That's a, that's a good react. I like having that sort of reaction. Um, <clears throat> so, so you don't like your Twitter followers. I do. No, I, I like them and I love how excited they are about the show because I was that big of a fan about the show and I still am a huge fan about the show. And so I like to geek out about the show with people. So for instance, I take photos on set um, of different things that are like, you know, the paintball. I just took a bunch of photos of like Louise Guzman's head covered in paint and stuff like that that I thought was just cool. And then I got to post them on Twitter and it was my fan nerdiness being like, hey, look at this. And then other fans get to be like, that's so cool. That's what I like. I do find it weird when I go to shows or stuff around Los Angeles and people come up and say like, you're Megan Gans. That, but that's just a factor of me still being like a shy kid. Like I still don't, I'm, I'm nervous. And when you, when strangers approach me, I get really nervous and I get mumble mouthed and I, I don't know what to do. And I, I always worry that that reflects on the show because I would hate for anybody to leave talking to me and being like, she was kind of a bitch. Like she didn't talk to me. She didn't seem as funny as like her writing. And because like, it isn't like I'm a writer. I don't, I'm not I'm not necessarily on all the time. I'm not like a performer. You know, you go up to Donald or you go up to Danny or like Jim Rash or this one like that, and they're hilarious people and they're funny all the time. And I'm not, I, I can't, I can't be like that. And so I don't want to ruin anyone's appreciation of the show by them meeting me and being underwhelmed. That's my, you know, it's like, that's, that's 
I don't know if it's false humility, humility or what, but people got after us at, at Paley Fest because we didn't stand up when they like said our names, but they shined <laughs> lights right at our faces and it was scary. I mean, we're, we, uh, we like sitting in a room and, and being hidden and you know, that's, that's our bag. I, I, they could say to me tomorrow, you could be an extra in a scene on the show. And I would say, absolutely not. I have no, I don't want to be in front of the camera. Um, in fact, like on Dimitri's show, they put, he put us in some sketches and I was always like, I really don't want to do this. And everyone was like, oh, you're being modest. And I was like, no, I'm being terrified. I really don't like being in front of a camera. I like, I am not conscious of the way my body moves. Like all I'm conscious of are the words and, and only the words that I've had time to edit. So like, that's, that's my strong suit. Um, but I do. I do love that in, to be able to engage with fans in that way. And, and, um, the reason that I put stuff on Twitter and I have a public presence is because that's what I feel like I owe to the fans for what they give to me, which is them sending me fan art, them, them sending us like, it, it, like watching the show and you search like while I'm watching the show, a lot of times I'll be on Twitter searching the hashtags and being able to see these moment to moment reactions that people are having of like, Oh my God. And quoting the show. And that's, to me is like just as good as sitting in a theater and getting to hear them laugh when they're watching it. Um, and since I can't do that, obviously on every episode, uh, I have to search Twitter and I feel like because they're giving us so much love and so much enthusiasm and all this creativity, I feel like I at least owe it to them to sort of like every once in a while drop a little like tidbit about the show backwards. And, um, and so, so yeah, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily courting Twitter followers. I don't like, I don't want to be like, I don't want to have 25,000 people following me because what that eventually means you hit a certain point in which people just feel like they can tell you that you suck mm. and that you're shitty and I don't want to court that and that's why I became a writer I don't want people to have that access to me um, but but yeah so I'm, I'm going to try to stay in that range where the only people that are following me are people that bother to care to find me and anybody else if like don't then they can just not follow me if they're not interested of course like Allison Brie or, or Donald have like hundreds of thousands of followers as they should because they want to be in the public eye. They they're putting that out there and and uh, yeah and I and I I do podcasts because then you can't see me what I'm doing while I'm doing that. <laughs> uh, for me, on the other side of it, I, I like to have a connection to a writer, um, like because I don't see it as as like the actors. You know, they made it up. Like I know that there's some voice behind it. And so, like, I like to watch Seinfeld and know that this episode Larry Charles wrote because mm -hmm. it's dark. And so, and so, like, with you, you did, like, one of those community on the internet things um, after the bottle episode. And so, like, I watched the episode and it's great and it's my favorite episode. Oh, uh, and, but then, like, I go on Hulu and there's this video and you're like, I'm Megan Gans, I wrote this. <laughs> um, and so, and so now, like, okay, th here's a person I can follow who has a voice. Oh, and well. so, like, <laughs> I'm glad. I mean, and and to be to be perfectly fair, we all are participate in everyone's draft. So there's no draft that's wholly written by any one writer. Mm -hmm. But certainly, like, I stay with my episodes from beginning to end so they have a lot of me in them and I pick topics that I'm more interested in like the bottle episode Dan had been talking about for a while and I was just like waiting my turn going I hope nobody picks that I hope nobody <laughs> picks that I hope nobody picks that stupidly thinking that everyone would want that episode which of course I don't think anybody did because it's like 
the it it could have been the least flashy episode i mean it could have been boring it was the all that that idea was was let's have them never leave the study room i mean that's the idea that dan had at the very beginning and uh and so it could have been very boring but to me it sounded like the most exciting thing and i think that if if nothing else that was my influence there was my i i gravitate towards that sort of stuff so my like my episodes i would say um Probably, I mean, now I've, I'm all over the place because I wrote the um, documentary filmmaking Redux this year, which was crazy and broad and all over the place. And so, but I, but I would say in general, like I do like smaller character-driven, dialogue-driven stories. Um, and the less that I have to do, like choreography-wise, the better off I am. Um, so, I, and those were always my stories, my favorite stories growing up. Like I love the Seinfeld like uh, parking garage episode uh-huh. and the Chinese <laughs> restaurant episode and those sorts of things that are so weird and they shouldn't be funny and they then they should be boring but they're almost throwing it in your face and, and that's what I'm saying about like my masochistic sensibilities like I like I like when things shouldn't be and then they are and then you it just feels like pulling a, like squeezing blood from a stone in a really great way so so yeah I did have influence there and and uh and um yeah, I mean, I, I get that connection like people want. And I've been really flattered and honored that people now look forward to my episodes and when they see that I'm going to be doing it, and they ask me, like, when's your next one? And that's, like, that's great. I mean, it's cool. And, and also having been such a big fan first season, it was my absolute nightmare. And it woke me up in the middle of the night in cold sweats for my first, you know, few months on the job that I would be somebody who ruined community, that I would be one of those people that came in in my episodes, people would go, this wasn't a very good one because I watched it first season and loved it. And God forbid that I take away one iota of happiness from fans. You know, that's like the le- it would be like stabbing my former self in the back. You know, I just couldn't do that. So the fact that my first one was received so well, I just felt good in the sense of like, oh, thank God I wasn't like, I'm not ruining something I find so great. I'm like part of a reason that maybe it's good. And I, and I was that big of a fan for, for instance, Chris McKenna, like when I started, uh, when the, right when I started, um, I just gotten hired and Dan invited all of the writers and the new writers over to his house to watch the season finale of season one and have like a little get together and get to know each other. And, you know, I was meeting everyone and I was really nervous and, uh, and of course really nervous to be around Dan because I idolized him and I thought that he was just a genius. And so every time I spoke to him, I was trying to operate at the height of my intelligence, but, um, you know, the night went on and everything. And then I remember someone introduced me to Chris and I did like, I'm now his coworker. And I literally went, Chris, Chris McKenna. Oh my God. You wrote out of discourse. I love that. I thought that was, so funny oh my god and I started freaking out like a fan and I was like you were so funny I love like blah, blah blah and and I would have and it and I you know like looking back on it it could have very well been that he didn't have a major influence I mean that that was like a group written episode you can never tell just because somebody's name on is on something doesn't mean that they were the one that did the most writing on it um uh but uh, like we all we obviously it's a huge group effort but then I, I've seen Chris's episodes like over and over again and every you know he picks great um, stories he doesn't break stories he doesn't allow stories to um to advance if they're not tight if they're not good I mean chaos theory it was an absolute honor to be in the room with him during the breaking of that story because he he was so uh uh he was such a stickler 
And he was so good about making sure that every iota of that story worked and that, that it was like to the nth degree that we broke that thing out. And somebody else with not as loving of hands could have screwed. The, I mean, that thing could have been a mess. It could have very easily been just like a mess. But he is he is so um, uh, specific. And uh, and so it was great. It was like, yeah, just being in, in the room with him. It's like it's not a surprise that all of his episodes come out so great. It's really because of his effort and because he's painstaking. And on set, he's painstaking. He can get Chevy to be the funniest he's ever been. I mean, he there's something about Chris. He just like figures out how to push Chevy and like the actors in a way that like makes them perfect, makes them so good in scenes. He, he, his episode is the next one, next Thursday's episode. Um, and it's hilarious and Chevy is laugh out loud funny in it and like awesome and and uh, yeah so I'm still like even now I'm like he's I'm the biggest fan of him like I think he's the best writer on the planet it's great um, I'm gonna reveal my geekiness now uh, I after that chaos theory episode I posted like a thing on tumblr um, like outlining why I thought that you were going to follow a different timeline than, oh, yeah. than you did. And like Dan Harmon like tweeted my Tumblr post and he was like, this guy is wrong. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's great. Wait, which timeline did you think it was going to be? Um, Not Troy's, obviously. <laughs> no, it was... I forgot which one it was, but there were like all these clues I found. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, but that's... But you know what? It's amazing that our show courts that sort of... I mean, there were people that were saying that... Um, what was it? That that two, 304, the episode where they pick a new bio partner, mm -hmm. was our comment on uh, Whitney, on the, on the, <laughs> like, on the, new uh, the new shows that were coming to NBC, and that we were saying, like, we don't want them in our group. And I was like, well, uh. I was like first of all, no. But secondly, how cool of a TV show that people think that we're being that, you know, in-depth about, like, our, like, hiding that many layers to our... Uh, to our, you know, genius or whatever. But, uh, but, but, but those same people catch things that we would never imagine that they would catch, like the Beetlejuice runner and like the monkey taking the pen in my first episode. I, and I was, when I, when that episode went live, I was searching Twitter and searching all the uh, AV club <laughs> comments being like, nobody's going to catch this. Nobody's going to catch this thing. And then it was literally an hour after the East coast feed that somebody posted on AV club. Like, did anybody see the monkey taking Like they had rewound it and already found it. And it was like, oh my God, our fans are the greatest people. And they also noticed, which I think is awesome, that in my, that in uh, 308, in the, in the, in the uh, Hearts of Darkness episode, that, that when the Dean strips, that his underwear that he was wearing is the same kind of underwear that Jeff wears in the pool, in the billiards episode <laughs> from first season, which was Jim Rash's idea to wear those same underwear. And the fact that somebody caught that online. It's maybe like, bad. It, no, it's just <laughs> incredible. It's like, it's so awesome to have people that are watching your show with such like, you know, focused gaze. I think that that's... Yeah, very focused. Yeah. Uh, what, what is there, was it specific underwear? Like yeah, well, it wasn't like the same pair, obviously, but yeah, it's like... Um, uh, Paul, I don't know. It's like some fancy designer. I, I'm, I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, it's fancy underwear uh, that, uh, but that apparently Jim just actually had because this, whoever, like Joel has his own, like in those shots and also in the, um, in cooperative calligraphy, he had his own, he, he like, you know, has his own underwear and stuff that like he bring, and he gets it 
and I'm blanking on the name of the designer or whatever, but it's like, it's the specific underwear that he likes. And so they, so, but anyway, Jim had the same type of underwear. And so he was like, do you think that would be funny? And I was like, I love that idea. I love the idea that the deans either saw those underwear on Jeff and decided to buy them or stole those underwear from Jeff, (laughs) which is what I like to think that he just took them from him somehow. But, um, but yeah, so that's cool. I mean, it's cool that you have fans that pick up on like that kind of minutia. That's it for part one. Join me next week when my guest again will be Megan Gans. Part two, the return. Or uh, part two of Dan Harmon's story circle would be the need. Uh, part seven would be the return. All right. See you then. Thanks for listening. Thank you.